We're so happy that you've linked into Transforming Truth. The message you're about to hear is part of a new series that we are airing, and the series is called How God Works With You. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And as we look at the kingdom of God, we need to understand His word, yes. His works, yes. But a lot of people don't understand His ways, so they misunderstand what He says and what He's doing. So this series is going to help you understand how God works with you. We started just a couple of weeks ago um, a new series on Wednesday nights, and actually, I guess it may have even been last Wednesday, uh, called um, How God Works With You. And we are not going to be focusing pri uh, primarily on, we're going to use God's Word, but it's not a study uh, on God's Word, and it's not a study on God's works primarily, it's actually a study on God's ways. We have to understand the ways of God in order to be able to discern his movement in our life, to be able to discern the will of the Lord, you have to be familiar with the ways of the Lord. And so I'm going to read verses 26 through 31, and I'm answering the question tonight, why did God enlist you? That's the name of this message. Why did he enlist you? And I think that this passage of scripture uh, breeds hope, and I hope that also it breeds humility in all of us that are listening tonight, and that we can come away uh, more strongly galvanized in our big picture purpose in this life. And I believe that if some will listen properly tonight, that there's going to be a pretty intense burden lifted off of some people tonight. And that burden falls in the area of, of perfectionism, um, always feeling like you have to have it together, or that spirit of competition where we feel like we've got to outdo or outpace people. I'm sure nobody in here ever struggled with that, but just theoretically, it's for the people on the podcast. People listening to the podcast, they need it tonight. 1 Corinthians 1, verse uh, 26, Paul says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I want you to pray for yourself to receive tonight. Just, just let the Lord pour into you this evening. Father, give us hearts to hear. And Lord, let me not leave off anything that needs to be said in the short amount of time that I have. Let it just land perfectly tonight where you've prepared good ground. It is about you, Lord. We know those words. Help us to get it. It's just about you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell you right off the bat that one of my favorite themes throughout Scripture is the repeated, demonstrated reality that God is for the underdog. The Lord loves the underdog. There's something in our heart, if we have a heart, 
that, that loves the underdog. We, we like movies about it, books about it, songs about it. We love to see it played out. The, there, you know, every now and then you'll, you'll catch a, a moment on a news channel where they, they, they portray a heartwarming story, and it's almost always the theme of somebody that was an underdog being elevated and exalted and winning when it le- looked least likely that it would happen. And so when I read the Bible, I say to myself, I am so grateful that God is for the underdog. And the reason why is because I am one. You are one. You were born into the world as spiritual underdog. You didn't stand a chance. I didn't stand a chance. Theologically, it's expressed in this way, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins that we were the children of the devil, the children of darkness. We were at enmity or we were enemies or hostile towards God, that there was no hope on our own. And so immediately born into a world and then choosing um, even different levels of rebellion. All of our, our children, we've raised children. No, none of us ever taught our children how to misbehave. It's in the nature of man uh, to be a rebel. The Bible says that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child and only the rod of correction can drive it away. And so we are born underdogs. There's no way we can win on our own. We are, we are fallen. We are depraved. We are, and, and apart from Jesus Christ, we are sinners When we look in Scripture, God is not impressed with anybody, but He loves us. And if I had to have a choice of whether I was an impressive object to God or an object of God's love, I'm going to take the object of God's love every time, and that's your reality. So Paul's writing to a messed up church. If if I was doing a new series on the book of 1 Corinthians, I would call it in a modern term the jacked up church. Corinth was messed up. They were uber gifted. They flowed in all of the supernatural gifts, except the one thing that they were lacking was two things, maturity and love. They couldn't get along. And so as Paul is opening what would prove to be, 1 Corinthians, a pretty intense letter of correction. He had to work on everything in that church, a long letter. He opens up by reminding them that they all began in the same place. They all began as underdogs, and God moved towards them in intensity. And so let's learn just a little bit. Why would God enlist you? Why would he choose you? Why would he choose me? Why would he go after us with the intensity that he did to make us his own and then to dispatch us in this generation to be his representative ambassadors? Why did he enlist you? Well, let's begin with this. The first reason is that God wants an unimpressive pedigree. Look at what Paul begins to say. He says this to the church at Corinth. I want you to consider your calling. I want you to take note, children of God at Corinth, of your calling. Now, this speaks of what theologians would call a salvific calling. It's a calling unto salvation, but it's not just that. It's everything that follows that too, because God doesn't just call us unto salvation. He calls us into lordship. We, we confess and acknowledge the lordship of Christ, and then that contains the element of us moving out for the glory of Christ in this life. But this is the three things that Paul lists here. As he's reminding the church at Corinth that didn't know how to get along, he reminds them that this, most Christians are not scholarly. He says here, not many of you are wise according to the worldly standards. That has been the history of the church. 
America is a developed country. The church in the West is developed, educated, enlightened, resourced, and equipped. But I'm going to tell you, the history of the church all across the globe can be categorized as this. Most Christians are not scholarly. scholarly. Most Christians would not be applauded by the world system as being geniuses, as being intelligent, and certainly not genius in the things of the world. And so what Paul is doing, he's immediately saying, he's saying, you got the world on one side, you've got the church, the, the children of God on the other side. And he says, church, take an honest inventory. We are not altogether impressive when it comes to the scholarly. That doesn't mean we're, that we're being insulted here, but the reality is, especially in the first century, that the composition of the church was primarily the lowest level of society. You can read through the Gospels in the book of Acts, and you're not going to find but a handful of people that were impressive people. Most of the people that comprised the church were people that the world had rejected as being unworthy. And quite frankly, that is still the case. But not only are they not scholarly, most Christians are not self-sufficient. Paul said this, not many of you were powerful. And that's speaking primarily of influence and, and prestige and power in the political realm. So in academics, we don't fit the bill as being impressive. In, in politics, our power, our strength, our self-sufficiency, we are not exemplary. We, we, we aren't people that can get alone on our own or get along on our own. Think about this. In order to qualify to even become a Christian, the first thing you have to confess is that you can't make it on your own. There's nobody that gets into the kingdom of God strutting. There's nobody that comes in apart from an admission of need. And if there's anything in our world today that kind of smacks of the pride of this generation, it's this self-sufficiency. I'm self-contained. I can self-preserve. I don't need anybody. I lived that way for many years prior to coming to Jesus, and it was a disaster that I was blind to. And so ultimately, we, apart from the presence of Christ, when he calls us, we're not really powerful. If you think about it across the globe today, there aren't a lot of very powerful people who also happen to be followers of Jesus Christ. I think it was in either the late 80s or the early 90s, and that uh, well-known man named Ted Turney, Turner was just, uh, he's talking out of his mouth, and he said this. He said, Christianity is a religion of losers. Do y'all remember that? He got lambasted, of course, nowadays. You know, it's common fare, and we're open game. But Ted Turner was the first one that had the backbone to say it publicly. He said, Christianity is, is, is a religion for losers. Let me just tell you something. Theologically speaking, he's actually correct. Jesus says this, you cannot follow me. He actually said, Jesus said in John, uh, excuse me, he said in Luke 9, 24, he said that if you do not lose your life for me, then it won't be saved. And so in the strict theological sense, it's true. Christianity is, is con, uh, comprised of people who have to lose their worldly life in order to be uh, appropriating kingdom life. But Ted Turner didn't mean it that way. It was an insult from Ted Turner, but Jesus taught it as doctrine. We cannot hold on to our life. We cannot hold on to our name. We cannot hold on to our own power. We cannot live to our own prestige. We literally have to renounce those things in order to receive all that the Lord has for us. And to the world's eyes, that kind of lifestyle, that kind of call does not look powerful at all. It looks like the most despised weakness. And yet Jesus says, that's where I meet people. I meet them in that weakness. And the third thing is that most Christians are not sophisticated. He wants an unimpressive pedigree, not so scholarly, not self-sufficient, and not sophisticated. He said, uh, not many of you were of noble birth. 
um, in, in the ancient culture where Paul is writing, in the Greco-Roman culture in the first century, the best thing that could happen to a person was to be born into the right family. It was the most important thing. And, of course, there was such an intense classification of people based on the family or the, the area where they were born. And so what Paul is saying, he's saying to these feuding Christians, remember, the context is that these Christians can't get along. And what Paul is saying, he says, don't you remember where you came from? You, you guys are bowing up on each other. You're strutting around. You're boasting of your spiritual gifts. Some of you say that you're, you're all that because you're hanging out with Peter. And some of you say, well, we belong to Paul, Apollos, and he's the guy that can talk. And others of you saying, well, I belong to Paul because he's the signs and wonders apostle. And then some of you are really super spiritual. This is all in the beginning of chapter 1. Some of you are really super spiritual. You say, well, I belong to Jesus. And so you've got all this posturing going on in the church. And Paul comes in, and he's writing a letter. And he says, hey, just remember where he found you. You know, I think it's good counsel for all of us when we get that dissatisfied, discontent, that edginess on the inside. If we're happen, happening to be in a season where we're grappling with other people getting ahead and we feel stagnated, or we see other people getting accolades, and we see other people getting open doors of ministry, or we see an anointing on somebody that we wish we had, and we see all of this stuff, and it is a breeding ground, if we're not careful, for a competitive spirit that has nothing to do with the heart of Jesus. And so what Paul wants to do is he wants to, not so gently, take us back and say, God actually goes after people with unimpressive pedigrees. Now, you may be already asking, well, why? And I would like to say this. It's not that God won't go after impressive, strong, scholarly, able, self-sufficient people. He, it's not that he only goes after the impossibly hopeless people. But the fact of the matter is, is people that have strength, that have worldly wisdom, that have worldly power, that have worldly pedigree, they're not interested in the gospel primarily. So it's not that he doesn't go after them, it's just most of them don't respond to the gospel as people who are in a, an awareness of their weakness. So go down further into verse 27 and 28. God, when we think about why does God enlist us, why did he go after you? One, he loves an unimpressive pedigree, and if you can humble yourself and do an honest evaluation, your pedigree may be okay compared to maybe mine, but to God, we, we, surely we can't say, well, God has to be impressed with me. We're all unimpressive to the Almighty. But he also preserves an un, un, uh, undeserved promotion. God likes to reach down low and bring up high. The heart of the Father is that he pursues the lowest rung on the ladder, and then he turns the ladder upside down, so it's the highest rung in the ladder in the kingdom. Now watch what he does here. Look what the Lord does. God takes initiative with these low broken powerless people and it's not the other guy that's you go ahead and receive that that's me god takes the initiative it says but god chose but god chose but god chose now i'm not here to split the the uh, predestination and, and and free will adam okay we, we we've gone through all of that stuff before but i want you to know something in every demonstration of the glory of God towards man in every act of grace, in every act of favor, God is always the initiant. He always moves first. Had the Lord not moved to you in grace, bringing the gospel to you, stoking the fires of a dead faith to make it a live faith, a living faith, he quickened you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Had the Lord not initiated that move, you never would have come to Christ. And we have to humble ourselves, because otherwise you're going to take credit for your whole salvation. 
You're going to say, bless God, I woke up one day just supremely wise, and I just decided it was going to be a great day to be a Christian. I repented of my sins. I chose to believe the gospel. I cleaned up my... No, 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 friend. You responded to grace that he initiated, and thank God that you responded to it. But had he not initiated, had God not moved toward you on his own will, we need to recognize this. Uh, We we, we are tempted to say, well, man has the ability to choose, but does that mean God doesn't? We need to remember that God is a free moral agent too, and he gets to choose. And so he came after you. I want you to make that personal. I want you to bask in that for a moment. You, you, you can't take credit for it, but you also shouldn't say, well, it can't be true because I'm unworthy. Well, that's the magic of it or the majesty of it. The majesty is, is that none of us were worthy, but in God's infinite love for you, he came after you. And some of us, he had to cut through a whole mess of stuff to get to us, but he did it. And so in our heart beats this question, wow, why would he do that for me? And the second question is, what is the appropriate response from me to a God who has done something so great? But look at the rest of the text. So God chose, he took the initiative. By the way, if you don't agree with that, remember John 15, 16. Jesus looked at his first disciples and he said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He, he told them that. So he's the one who always initiates. But look at what he initiated towards. God's instruments. Very quickly here, just four of them. The foolish in the world. They're right there in verses 27 and 28. The weak in the world. The lowly and despised in the world. And the nothings in the world. This is where we all began from heaven's viewpoint. Heaven's viewpoint was never pictured like this. Wow, she is awesome. She would be great in my kingdom. Wow, she is so impressive. And him, this would be wonderful. I would love to have him on my team. Let me save them because of who they are, what they can do, and what they've got. Never happened. That's a fictitious, and I think you know that, man-made view. Listen, from God's perspective, even the best among us, apart from Jesus, we were low. The Bible says foolish there. Do you know what the Greek word means? I mean, I'm really not here to flatter you tonight. It's just your Bible. Don't get mad at me. It's just your Bible. The Greek word translated foolish, they prettied it up in all the translations. It actually means stupid. It actually means stupid. And by the way, if we don't like that, when the Bible tells us that we are sheep and we're often, you know, you know compared to sheep, that's not a compliment either. Sheep are not smart. Sheep are not impressive. Sheep are not intimidating. They fall on their backs. They can't even get up. They have to have a shepherd set them right. They'll just sit there with their legs in the air on their back all day long because they don't know how to get up. So when the Bible tells us that we are sheep, and then here it says that we are foolish, we're not being flattered, but we're still being loved. That's what we need to hear. So yeah, it kind of sticks a pin in the the balloon of our pride and pops it. But when the balloon of pride pops, that doesn't mean that the substance of love is taken away. He loved us in our foolishness. He loved us in our spiritual stupidity, if I can. He loved us in our, in our weakness. And, and, and remember, the, the qualifying phrase there is according to the world's standards. And so when the world looks at us and they, they echo Ted Turner's thought, wow, I don't want to be a Christian. Christianity is a religion for losers, and that's the way it has always been. But look at what God does with those of us who, apart from him, could be theologically and in reality qualified as losers. God says, I'm going to move after you because I'm choosing to enlist you. I'm choosing to go after you. I'm not going to leave you in that state 
of loserhood. I'm going to make you one of my children. And and if you don't keep your mind and heart fixated on the back end of the transaction, because the front end of the transaction is a bummer. You know, sinners, foolish, ignorant, weak, blind, defiled, dead, all of that. That's a bummer. Nobody likes to hear that. But that's part of the gospel. It's the bad news part of the good news. The bad news is what makes the good news so good. Because the good news is that none of that deterred God, that his love was actually stronger than our unworthiness. And so he moves in that strength of his love, and he brings us out of that and com- uh, completes that transaction on our behalf. But notice this, and this is where you're going to get excited, because we're going to start talking about, stop talking about us for a minute and start talking about the world. This is important. Down in verse number 28, look at God's intention. Why would God go after that? Why did he set it up this way? Why does he go after unimpressive underdogs? Well, there are three reasons that are here, and they are intense, and I hope you can receive it. The Bible says he did it in order for the purpose, with the intentionality to shame those that are wise in the world, to shame those that are strong according to worldly standards, and to bring to nothing the established things of the world, to shame the wise to shame the strong, and to bring to nothing the uh, established things of the world. Now, forgive the Greek lesson here, but when you see that word shame in the ESV, and I, I memorized that in the King James. It was confound in the King James. It's a Greek word. Now, watch this. It means to humiliate and disgrace. The Bible teaches that in the plan of salvation and the reason why God goes after what we've already described as the weak, the castaways, the rejects, the forgotten, the the fallen, all of us, the reason, one of the reasons why is not only his love for us, but he's actually using you and I, he's using you and me in order to display to the world his glory and his wisdom, and he's going to put the world system, the antichrist system that has existed literally from the Garden of Eden, or at least from the Tower of Babylon when man wanted to work his way to God, God's going to flip that thing on its head. And he's literally working with the intentionality of bringing absolute disgrace on a world system that is basically rooted in humanism. The generation that you and I are living in is rooted in the power of self. Every ism, every asafi in the world today is rooted in this humanism. You can take all of the different branches of systemic thought and you're going to find, the secular ones, you're going to find they're rooted in the exaltation of the human self. And God looks at that, and if I can risk this, I told you weeks ago that when I hear him talk, he often uses my own voice to speak to me. So I hear him like I speak sometimes, and I hear him say, do they really think they're going to get away with that? Do they really think that they're going to be the objects of glory forever and ever? Do they really think I'm going to let that go forever? I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to build my eternal family out of the very people that the world system has rejected, and I'm going to, for the eternal ages, put them on display with me for my glory, and I'm going to make the world watch, and they're going to be disgraced. Did you know that that's actually the back end of the prophetic story? When you read the book of the Revelation, listen, the Bible says that we're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ while those that have rejected Jesus are going to confess by force, not by faith. They're going to confess by force, uh, force, Christos Kurios, Christ is Lord. But it'll be too late for them. 
because they have rejected them in their lives and they have trusted in their own strength and their own power and their own accomplishments and their own fame and their own beauty and their own attainments. And the Lord says, I'm going to put that to shame. How does he do it? Well, it's right here. The reason why he's choosing the underdog The reason why he goes after people like you and me who on a Wednesday night don't always feel like we're up to our A game and we don't feel like it always on Thursday morning and we don't feel like on Sunday. And listen, depending on what month it is, it might just be any day of the week where we're saying, oh, I just don't know what I have to offer. And the Lord went after you in that state and he continues to go after you. He's not asking you to be impressive. He's not asking you to live up to the expectations of an impossible-to-please generation. He's not asking you to throw on yet another layer of performance that just weighs you down and actually intrudes upon his purposes for your life. He's saying, no, I actually chose you at your very weakest. And if I ran to you then with all of my love and all of my favor and all of my might, what makes you think subsequent spots of weakness would ever deter me from continuing to press into you? See, my friends, God's never looked at us, and, and some, of, some of the people that raised us did. Some of the authorities in our life, they, they, you know, we were always you know, on the checklist. We've got to meet the checklist. Got to do it right. Got to do it super right. Got to do it perfectly right. And if we did it wrong, then we got to do twice as much right the next time because we're always moving, always performing. Always, and and the, look, that's not the heart of the Father. It's just not his heart. And, and friends, if you were trained in that, by the way, I was trained in that. I still want to live in excellence, by the way but my motives have changed. I'm not wanting to strive for excellence in the sense of I got to do it or else. I am now at a place where I'm just saying he's so worthy of my very best that I want to give it to him, but he is also so good that when I don't offer him my best, it doesn't change the way he feels about me. Some of you need to receive that tonight because those spinning wheels, man, you're just not gaining any traction. You're just spinning and spinning and burning out and burning out. And the Lord's just wanting to say to us, he's, he's like, I actually loved you when you were an impossibly lost, ignorant sinner, when you didn't know me. You may have been six years old. You may have been 56 years old. But the point is, is this, that he moved towards you in your greatest moment of weakness. And yet it almost seems like that some of the theology that we've bought into is, okay, God got it started. You're very fortunate he saved, he saved you. But you better be on your best behavior, ma'am. You better, be, you better do it right every day, mister, or that wonderful thing that he gave you, uh-uh-uh. And that kind of breeds that fear. But the Lord said, no, I actually know all about your weakness. I actually know it better than you do. I am actually aware of weaknesses that you aren't even aware of, but I still love you, and I'm actually going to continue to use you in your weakness, because let me let you in on a little secret, my child. I'm actually going to take your weakness, I'm going to breed that into dependence in your heart. You're going to depend on me more, and as you depend on me more, I'm going to do greater things with you, and as I do that throughout your lifetime and throughout the age with all of my other children, in the end, I'm going to shame everybody else that rejected me, and they thought their strength was enough. You're actually going to bring me glory through your weakness, and yet we fight so often never to be weak, or if we have to be weak, never to show it. Paul would address this in this very book, actually, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but he, he, he got to a point, Paul got to a point where his testimony was, I now glory in my weakness. 
I thought, I remember preaching that 10 years ago and saying to the church, y'all pray for me. I'm not there yet. I want to be able to glory in my weakness. Well, let me just say it again. I am not there yet. I don't like it. I don't like not being at my best. I don't like it. But the fact of the matter is Paul learned that through his thorn in the flesh that in, and God spoke to him and said, it's in your weakness that my strength is actually perfected in you. So our strength that we strive for, that we, we yearn for, that we grieve when we're, we don't feel strong, we don't feel capable, we don't measure up, we don't compare, we're not as far along as this one, we're not as good as this one, and all the different measuring sticks out there, we need to snap them by faith, throw them away, and just recognize, wow, it, it's actually these things that I lack that foster a dependence on the Lord in a way that I wouldn't have if I could do it on my own. And it's my dependence upon the Lord and my weakness that actually brings about his glory. Now, this is the sticking point. This is the hard part. This is the rub right here. The rub is this. We really have to come to the place where we, we, we have to know exactly whose glory is it that we're living for. Because a, a man or a woman who's living for the glory of Jesus will learn not to grieve over his or her weaknesses or his or her shortcomings or all of the things on the to-do list that don't get done or what will people think about me? What will people say about me? I, I'm, I'm, you know, that, that silent, invisible spirit of competition. Some of us have lived in it so long, we're all, we, all we hear is not good enough, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. We don't even know who we're competing against. We don't even know who the enough standard is. We just sense that. And, and what the Lord is saying is, like, if, if you're living for my glory and my weak, your weakness, my child, is, is causing you to depend on me and I'm getting the glory from that, can you be at rest? Can, can you live in peace? Can you trust me with your weakness and your inabilities or you're not measuring up? Can you trust me with that if I'm getting the glory? And so we have to come to this crossroads where we really diagnose is it possible that in some part I'm living for my glory as a Christian? Am I trying to make sure everybody knows I'm good enough? Am I trying to keep up with the fictitious people that supposedly have it all together? Don't you know that just about everybody has like train wreck parts of their life? Y'all know that, right? I'm not convinced. I mean, literally. You know everybody's got some snafus of the soul. And, and there is nobody that has it all together. The, one, of the, one of the desires of your leadership heart here at Newbridge is we actually want to intentionally go after the facade of religion. Part of the calling on Newbridge in this territory, in this region, is that we would intentionally go after through prophetic intercessory prayer, through authentic relationships, through believing the Word of God, that we would go after the stronghold of religion in the Bible Belt and that we would unmercifully tear it down. You, you, did anybody grow up on a farm or in a rural setting? Did y'all ever go cow tipping? Did you ever do that? You know what cow tipping is? The cows stand up, they sleep at night, little punks run out there and push them over. I want to get into sacred cow tipping. These sacred cows in the church that don't belong there, I just want to run after them with all my, I know that wasn't spiritual, but it needed to be said, all my, and just knock them over. You know, Gideon did it. Gideon's first assignment was go, down, tear, go tear down all the false altars that your father and your grandfather erected. 
And that's part of the assignment on this generation. Tear down this silly stuff so we don't hide behind all of this uh, religious uh, nonsense. So let me go further into it. Y'all still with me? Let me give you this statement. So if God is flipping everything, the weak, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. Jesus said it that way. Maybe that's a succinct enough summary. So everybody that's on top in the world, everybody that's winning it at the present world system game, They've got their award shows. I'm not bitter, by the way. I don't want any of that junk, but I'm just going to call it what it is. They've got their award shows. They've got their self-aggrandizing. They've got their marketing schemes. They've got their PR team. They've got all the money, all the power, all the beauty, all of the fame. But if they don't have Jesus, the Lord has said, they're first now, but they're going to be last forever. And then the Lord also said that the people that are overlooked, the people that are un- or underappreciated, The people that are the least impressive, the least beautiful, the least powerful, the least influential, but they have Jesus, the Lord says they're actually going to be first in the kingdom, and that kingdom doesn't come to an end. And so one of the things that we need to be proclaiming to the church, not to the unbeliever, to the church is, are you trying to be first in this life at the risk of losing eternal rewards are you, are you going after that? Is it really important that you keep up with a world system that Jesus has already said, I'm going to bring it to a permanent end? Think about that. Think of how that enters. Listen, we're all susceptible to it. I mean, I, it just works that way. There's so many different layers. I don't even want to bore you by going into all the ways that can happen in our lives. But the reality is, if we're longing for acceptance in the world according to a worldly temporary measure then we are we are pursuing the wrong kingdom because jesus says i yeah i'm actually going to put that one under forever but what i am going to promote and then he just he speaks and his the writers of scripture speak to all that god promises to a reward and exalt you know the rewards of heaven are different than what gets rewarded down here on earth Rewards for things like obedience and humility and sacrifice and service. Things like um, praying and fasting. Jesus said, hey, do it in private and your Father will reward you. And yet we look at all of the immediate rewards, the, the applause or the approval of the people around us. People think well of us, speak well of us, are impressed with us. And I'm not even talking about in just irreligious things. I'm talking about stuff in the church. Oh, look at him, man. He's always got his eyes dotted and his T's crossed. He's an impeccable Christian. Well, maybe he is, and if he is, we'll, we'll, we want to be imitators of him as he follows Jesus Christ, but I don't want to compete with the guy. Here's, here's a humbling thing. When the Lord made you, he actually gave you a capacity, and you will never go beyond that capacity Parents, you need to hear me on this. Not every child is ordained by God to be an A student academically. And if they live under the pressure of bringing home A's when God gave them a B-minus intellect academically, then we are actually opposing the will of the Lord. But the world standard says, no! Heresy, Jeff! All students must be A students. They need to graduate with honors. They need to get scholarships. They need to go to college. They got to get a four-year degree and then another two years and maybe another four years or maybe even 12 years and then go and get a wonderful career that will make them lots of money and it will bring them into a beautiful neighborhood with a beautiful house and a beautiful car. And we just automatically buy the American dream. Folks, let's remember something. 
the, the gospel call on our lives and the American dream are incompatible. You can't, it doesn't mean that you can't benefit by living in a culture that has things and opportunities. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying you cannot pursue one kingdom and the other kingdom with equal velocity. You're going to have to back off of one. And so when we think about the capacity that we have, listen, I will never win a slam dunk contest. It's just not going to happen. I mean, I, the desire is there. I got out on the court the other day. And believe it or not, I actually played basketball for many years when I was younger. And I was fast and I could shoot, but I, I couldn't shoot near anybody because I was always the shortest guy on the court. But I got there, out there the other day, and the mind knew the moves, but the body said, uh-uh. <laughs> the body vetoed what the mind knew to do. And so I'm out there, and I'm, I'm doing these moves in my, my mind, and my body's saying, you don't have the capacity for that. <laughs> and I thought to myself, but I ought to be able to do this. Like, yeah, if you're not 15 anymore, and you're not 135 pounds anymore. It just doesn't work that way. And so in a moment of mental sobriety, I have to acknowledge, that's not probably going to be a part of my future. Now, that's a little bit of a silly illustration, but it can be applied to you because there is the possibility in here that some of you are going after an A game in parts of life where God didn't actually equip you to be in A game. He doesn't even want you to be. He wants you to be a contented B, B minus, or God forbid, a C. So, well, I can't, I can't make a C. Well, let me tell you, if you're striving to make a C in something that God has only ordained you to be a C in, then you're striving in your flesh. So I'm not trying to discourage anybody from going after excellence. What I'm trying to do is say this. I don't think the Lord's upset when we acknowledge our weaknesses to Him and we bring those weaknesses to Him. And then we also say in the same breath, Lord, forgive me for pursuing a level um, in this area that was inconsistent with, with your grace and what you've equipped me to do. I, I, th- I think if I can, when, when my time is finished of influence in the kingdom, uh, what I'm hoping is that part of what God uses me to do is to bring relief to people who are oppressed by unrealistic expectations. Sometimes those un- unrealistic expectations come from other people. Sometimes it's just in our own heart. And we live under that gray cloud of never enough. So Paul is telling Corinth, the Lord's going to flip everything. So let me give you this quote, and I'm, I know I'm out of time, but that's never really mattered to me, so I don't know why I start tonight, but if you need to leave, please go ahead. God intentionally prioritizes for his kingdom the very people that the world system rejects. He confounds the world system by overturning its values, its vision, and its victors. That is so important. Pretty much everything that the world system celebrates is antithetical to the heart of God. That's just a big word that means God doesn't like it. And we are living in a world that celebrates anything we can do. And God looks at that and he says, that's not consistent with my heart my vision, my values, and these people are not victorious. These people in the end are going to lose everything. And I'm going to tell you why in these last couple of verses, and then we will be done tonight. The reason why, and this is something, this is the platform for your life right here. It's not going to be eloquent, but it's still going to be true. God holds to an unwavering purpose. You have to get this. All of us do. 
and we can never forget it. And if we forget it, we need somebody to lovingly remind us. Here, here it is. Listen, it's not flattering. It's true. It's not about you. Life is not about you. It's not about me. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy it. It doesn't mean we can't be blessed. It doesn't mean we, we can't just experience Im immense pleasure in this life. But the motivation for our lives is not us. It's not our happiness. It's not our pleasure. That's not the core motivation of this life. It's not our comfort. It's not our name. It's not our legacy. It, it's not our influence. Ultimately, everything that we are, everything that we have, and everything that we leave, if we follow the Lord, he, he wants to run a, a line. The, the Hebrew word is tikvah. It's a cord of attachment. He wants to run that to himself, to his glory. So if we will believe this, and we'll start to realize that everything I am and everything I do can be about the glory of the Lord, and it doesn't have to be grinded out in some intense slavish fear. It moves from doing, doing, doing to, oh, I get to be for him. And, and there is a difference. And so we have to press into, oh, okay, I'm going to be about him. And when we come into that identity, being, then our activity, doing, flows. And that's where the pressure comes off. Because if I'm being his, then everything I do can be about his glory. If you don't believe me, just look at what Paul says here as he holds, as the Lord holds to an unwavering purpose. Verse 29, we've got to come to acknowledge our place. Why does God choose the foolish, the weak, and shame the wise and the strong? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in his presence. Now listen, let's just let our Bible speak. This is where we discipline our minds to believe our Bible. God says, I don't want anybody. This isn't in heaven, this is now. He's saying, I don't want anybody on earth boasting when they're in my presence. Now, that may sound harsh to you, and it would be harsh. It would actually be wrong if it wasn't God saying it. Because God's the only one who can look at everybody, every angel, every human, every animal. He can look at everything and he can say, just to remind you, it is all about me. It's about my glory. It's about my name. It's about my fame. It's about my kingdom. And if you'll press into me, because I am the focus of the eternal ages, and I will be, if you will press into me because I am God and there is no other, then you're going to benefit, and I'm going to make some of it about you. But if we make it about us, we set ourselves up in opposition to God, and God resists the proud. How many of you know that? He resists the proud. And so we've got to learn and acknowledge our place. Now, friends, I don't know how you process that. You can either process that with guilt or resentment, or it can actually be freeing. It can actually free you up to say, if it's not about me, I don't have to live pretending it is. I don't have to impress anybody. I don't have to measure up to people's unrealistic expectations. I, I don't have to, to, to look the way they want me to look. I don't have to do what they want me to do. And I'm not talking about a rebellious spirit. I'm talking about a, a liberated spirit from this world. I don't have to buy into their values. I don't have to play their game. Why? Because it's not about me. It frees you up to make it about him. Second thing, verse 30, we have to come to know the source of our strength. Look at verse 30. God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and redemption. 
So this is a message on its own, verse 30, but ultimately this is what the, the scriptures are teaching here. That God actually set this thing up to where we don't have to strive in fear because Christ is our righteousness. And if you have Jesus, you have perfect righteousness before the Father. Christ is our sanctification, and that's just simply a word of theological terms that means we are set apart for God in Christ. We're His. And so that, that's not going to change. We are His through the eternal sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He's our wisdom. I love that. So I don't have to understand everything that's going on. I'm looking at the chaos this week, just in the local news. I mean, it's just, it's just terrible, the things that are going on. And there's a part of me that, that this little, I don't know if you have that part of your brain that never stops. It's always going, uh, apparently I'm the only one, but that's, a, uh, but that little part of my, and I want to know why, and I want to know when, and I want to know how, and I really want to know what. And God sometimes just says, shh, I have the wisdom rest in me i know what i'm doing and so it, it actually relieves me so i'm looking at the chaos and you just name it pick whatever you want i mean just just there's so much of it out there and i don't have to make sense of all of that to go home and lay my head down tonight and be in peace why because god's got the wisdom for all of it and so i get to go home and i get to exhale i get to kiss my wife i get to listen to my kids a little bit and then i get to snore all night and it's going to be great I'm so looking forward to that. Amy's not, but I am really looking forward to that. So last thing, last thing. Y'all been patient. How far over did I go? Oh, I'm, I'm good. We must live to bring God glory. Now, don't forget everything I've just said. I'm not undermining it with this last thought. This is, what, this is now where you're free to live for God, God's glory. Therefore, as it is written, verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, there is such a relief when God brings you across that threshold and you don't just know theologically that it's not about you and it's all about Him, but you actually sense it. See, that's where a lot of us are, are having the, the, the kingdom hiccup is what I call it. We're, we're just not quite there. We, we know it theologically. We know the words. We understand what's being said but we don't yet sense it in our heart. And it is in that embracing moment where you receive, and, and I do believe it, it's, an, it's a God encounter. I don't think I can preach it into you. I, don't, I, I think I could preach another hour, and unless God shifts something in your heart and you respond to it, then it's, it's, it's going to remain up here. And so what, what, what Paul is saying here, he's quoting Jeremiah, uh, nine i think there and, and let the one who boasts boast in the lord in other words if there's going to be anything impressive about you just make sure that your motive is is that it runs to the lord that in other words it's it, there's a cord of attachment it's tethered to the lord's glory and so that means if you are given a capacity this high in the kingdom and another person is given a capacity this high in the kingdom that you don't grieve over the missed distance between here and here. You're living out your capacity to the fullest, and God says, that's my girl. That is my girl. She's giving everything she can, and I am going to honor that, and I'm going to bless it. She's not comparing herself. Paul would say it in this very chapter, I believe. It's at least in this book. He says, when you compare yourselves among yourselves, you are unwise. 
one of the hallmarks of being unwise is that we're constantly comparing ourselves to something else. And what Jesus wants us to do is learn to rest in him. You're probably going to have to so risk it that if your pendulum is over here where you're always having to perform, you're always trying to measure up, you're always trying to get it just so, it's got to be just right. If, you, if that's where you're at, if that's the way you tilt, and I tilt that way, I had to, for a season of my life, literally risk going too far in the other direction where I just said, I'm not going to try anymore. I never gave up, but I had to come to a place where I said, if this is my intensity level and it's not glorifying God, but it's leaving me weary, burned out, unhappy, and unfruitful, and God's not getting glory, um, then I'm going to take my hands off the whole thing and I let Lord, the Lord literally swing me back to neutral. And I said, all right, Lord, I'm in neutral. What do you want to do with this life? Because I don't want to live pinned over here anymore. But I also don't ever want to go back to who I used to be. Teach me how to fulfill the capacity that you've ordained for me. And that's the process I'm in now. I want to encourage some of you tonight. I do believe this, and I'm, I'm just going to quit. Matter of fact, just stand with me for a moment. Let's, let's just make this a springboard that we leave. Help me, Lord. Yeah. He came to you full force with immeasurable love and acceptance when you were at your weakest, and he did that the moment you trusted Jesus. It became yours. On your worst day, his level of love and acceptance of you has not inched backwards at all on your worst day. He is still pegged at 100% love and acceptance of you. From that, from that, exhale. And tonight, by faith, not by feeling, not by emotion, by faith, release all of that striving, all of that, I don't want to be the underdog. I want to be the strongest. I want to be at my best. I can't feel secure unless I'm, I'm doing and doing and doing. I want you just to, by faith, release that. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pray, Holy Spirit, come and remove it. It's a deliverance. You can be delivered. And in the back end, in that, in that exhale moment, just let the Lord say, no more finding your identity in things that are temporary. No more comparing. You keep your eyes on me, and I will bring you into your full identity, and you will learn what it means to be, what it means to be with me and not do for me.